Hi everyone, it's Amy. And I'm Hannah. And we're back again. Another week. Of wildlife behavior. Yes. So we're officially in the first week of October. And I think we've been at this for like... Since July. Late July. So three months, roughly. Thank you to our loyal listeners. We hope you're still interested. Yes. Um, Yeah, it's gone by kind of fast. And I feel like... We've covered a good amount. I'm going to cover one of my favorite migratory birds today. Um, You might know it. It's the American woodcock. They're goofy little fellows. They're the weirdest. I I remember, like, the first time I saw one, I was like, how is this thing even real? (laughs) Like, (laughs) I never knew it existed till I worked in wildlife rehab. And Yeah, I agree. And then you get a ton of them. Yeah, in the fall. (laughs) So not only is it, like, a... A weird animal, but you'll see a lot of them during migration season. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to talk a bit about that today, like what migration season means for these guys. But for someone who's never seen a woodcock, I'm I'm going to do my best to describe it. You really um, need to look it up. You need to Google that because <laughs> they are so special. Um, so the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, they describe them as plump, short-legged, and short-necked birds. <laughs> Um, so they get the short end of the stick and yes, and all the cute little bird features or no, though, those would be cute bird features. Those would be not as cute for maybe a person. I don't want to go that. No, I think they're cute. They are cute. You're right. I don't want to say that, but they're just adorable and weird and it's amazing. Um, they are robin sized and they're also considered a shorebird. I did know that. Yes. Um, I feel like they're a little bit bigger than a robin, though. They're definitely plumper. I know. Yeah, <laughs> they are more robust. I remember us describing robins as plump as well. Yeah. Um, these guys are more plump. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, and some people will call them timber doodles. They actually have, like, a list of nicknames. Um, this is, like, the second most common name for them. Okay. I don't know why. Timber doodle. Uh, yeah. So, in addition to that, they uh, they've got the plump thing going on they've got the short legs and short necks um they have really long thin beaks yeah and large globe-like eyes so they're like almost too large of eyes yeah they're very alien-like honestly um and then their plumage it's it's a mottled color you'll see kind of like a mixture um of black gray dark brown light brown Mm -hmm. and the underbody's got more of like an orange maybe cinnamon colored that's a good description. Color to it. Yeah, that's and that's Cornell coming through with uh-huh. the description. So I can't say credit for that one. But um, they they look the same no matter if they're a male or a female. Right. But you can determine who is who through genetic testing. There's also um, some, like, very specific measurements you can take. And <laughs> I know those are, like, they can be a little controversial. So I won't go too much into those. But some people believe if you measure like the wing length or the beak, beak length, you can determine if they're a male or female. Hmm. Um, I feel like that's very stressful on the animal. It is. And I remember like doing it once or twice just to get the experience for trying to measure. Okay. Um, but that's not something like in rehab that they would typically A, have the time to do. Yeah. Or B, really worry about because, you know, the sex You're going to treat them no matter yeah. what. Sex doesn't matter. Right. So, um, and you know, this mottled color really helps them camouflage into their environment. So Certainly. It's, it's, it's not just one, it's, we don't have any wing bars or any like specific stripes or spots or anything. It's just very much of a blend of colors with that plumage. Um, and where can they be found? Well, 
They can be found in young forested areas. So areas of trees that are younger in age, not too established. Oh. But established. <laughs> um, the outer edge of those forests. They can also be found in open fields. Okay. Um, those fields need to have established vegetation that they can hide in. Right. Um, they also like those wet marshy meadow areas. They really blend into those areas. Yes. yes. And you'll see them in agricultural fields as well. Oh, they, I wouldn't expect that. It's not as common, but they've been a little bit more adaptable than other shorebirds and maybe sandpiper species okay. when it comes to agriculture. So, yeah, and usually they're solitary unless it's mating season, which they do breed here and they raise young here in Chicagoland. Um, but usually they're solitary. So if you don't see them alone, it might be a small group of two to four. Okay. But yeah, they're kind of on their own otherwise. Parents and their fledglings. Yeah, likely. Um, and when they're in these areas, they do feed primarily on earthworms. Yep. They can eat their body weight in earthworms per day, which is pretty impressive. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. See, I've only experienced them in rehab settings where they're so emaciated to the point where they're not really feeding as readily as they should. Yes. Yes. And you know how many earthworms a rehab center can go through if they're... Oh my gosh, so many. Don't it's like every earthworms. woodcock gets like a massive fistful of worms. Yes. So it just just so you guys know, if you donate to any wildlife rehab centers that care for birds, earthworms might be on their list. And I would check with them on that because yep. I can think of many times where staff members and volunteers had to like go buy earthworms or pick them up because they just ran out. Yep. And yeah. mealworms. Oh, yes. Yes. Those little... Little mealies. Little mealies. Um, but in addition to the earthworms, they do eat other invertebrates. Um, that, that could be like ground-dwelling, I almost said ground-swelling insects, and that's <laughs> not it. Ground-dwelling insects. Okay. Um, so like like grasshoppers? Yeah, ants, beetles, grasshoppers, stuff like that. Okay. Um, it's where that long thing beak is going to come into hand so they can exactly, smash them up. Exactly, exactly. Um, snails, spiders, stuff okay. like that. Um, as you were saying, the long bills come in handy because they do use them to extract their prey and eat them right up. Mm -hmm. um, but they use them to probe into the ground so they can yeah. go pretty far down to get something. Irrigation. Exactly. Um, and they also feed on plant matter. I, I've never seen this personally, but a little bit of vegetation here and there doesn't hurt anyone. Well, so. Maybe that's when they're found in like those agricultural fields. Mm -hmm. They've just adapted to that kind of environment. It's possible. And it's just one way to kind of help supplement their diet maybe if they're lower in bugs yeah yeah um let's see oh and something that's really cute when they're feeding sometimes they'll be rocking back and forth <laughs> so you may have seen that video that kind of popped up early in the year of the woodcock that was dancing as they would call it yes. and like of course the internet just ran with it and they made all sorts of videos with music for this bird to quote dance to <laughs> and uh <laughs> That's exactly what they do when they eat. And the thought is that they do it to help cause vibrations in the ground. Okay. So that they can kind of stir up things underneath. And yeah. it helps them detect movement, especially for those earthworms. Yeah. And that way they can just dig right in and get their meal. Oh. Yeah. yeah. So What a unique adaptation. I know. It's all for a reason. It's not just dancing. Right. Yeah. Um, a cool thing about these guys too, I mentioned they're migratory and they're one of the first birds that we'll see in spring migration. Right. Um, they're also one of the last ones to leave. I've noticed that. Yes. So late fall. Yes. Yes. 
So we're still in migration in October. It's getting more towards the end of it. Right. And I can remember seeing these guys at least late October. Indeed. Maybe early November if we're having a warmer season. Um, So, yeah, they're here for quite a while. And they're only short-distance migrators. So um, they'll go, like, downstate if it's warmer. Um, The furthest they'll go are, like, the Gulf states. So they don't leave the country. Okay. The continent, I should say, like other. (laughs) They don't leave the country. Um, They don't leave us like other birds would that would maybe go to Latin or South America. Okay. Um, So they're just short-distance migrators. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what else? Oh, and when they come here, um, like I said, they're one of the earliest ones. They start mating as early as March. Okay. So it explains why they're here so early. And you start to get so they mate here and they nest here. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. And, um, you'll, you may have heard that they do these sky dances, much like those red-tailed hawks we talked about. Right. But they're not as like scary as the red-tailed hawk dance. <laughs> They're not, like, grabbing each other and falling to the ground. <laughs> um, they do, like, these zigzag patterns in the sky. And the male will start out, and then you'll see the female kind of join in. Okay. It's his attempt to court her. And it just seems really erratic. You'll hear him make a lot of different melodic sounds as he's trying to, um, again, court her and convince her that he's the father and or he should be the father. Yeah. Um, he's got so. the best traits. Yeah, yeah. And I know, like, sometimes you can see these. Some of, uh, like, the conservation organizations and forest preserves and stuff in the area might schedule, like, sky dance walks if they know that there's a good habitat space where a lot of woodcocks gather. Yeah. Um, I definitely look into that if you want to see this in person. It's it's way better than how I could ever describe it. And you said it's typically in March, right? They'll start that up in March, yes. Um, and they go throughout the summer because weather, seasonal changes can kind of affect when mating and breeding really begin. Okay. Um, but as early as March is when we can start to see it. So they have a variable range of like breeding and yeah. nesting. Yeah. Okay. A little variable. Um, let's see. And that male, by the way, he will mate with several females throughout the season. So he's not involved in the parenting. No. It's just mom and her babies. Exactly. Yeah. So he's not really involved. That happens though. <laughs> That's why they do have those elaborate courtship displays because they want to show the females, hey, I'm the best. Yeah. And then they're just going to move on and do that courtship display again. That's his work. Um, So when mama, you know, has her eggs, she's going to have between one and five eggs in a clutch. Okay. And um, they're really simple with the nest building. So basically it's a shallow depression in like leaf or stick litter. Okay. Um, They're not going to build anything. It's just basically digging a hole. (laughs) Um, and they're actually pretty exposed from what I understand. Um, they're not hidden. There's really, really nothing elaborate to it. And mom's going to incubate on them for around three weeks. Okay. Um, I saw online where like if she's kind of flushed from the nest or, you know, threatened early on, she's going to abandon that nest. They're pretty quick to abandon things. Yeah, they're easily startled, and they're very finicky yeah. creatures, so I can yeah. easily see how they wouldn't return to a nest right. if they were startled off. Makes sense, and also it's it's exposed in a shallow hole, so not much to... So are they ground nesters? Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah, right in the ground. So it really is just like a divot in the ground with yeah. some sticks? Yep. I feel like that would be easily preyed upon. Oh, definitely. I would think so. 
I can think of so many animals. So maybe that's why she's quick to leave early on. But I guess as they get closer to hatching, she's going to change her game plan. She's going to do the um, laying there very still, like just not moving, almost like trying to blend in with her surroundings. That would explain the sticks because her body modeled colors gonna she's look gonna like a bundle of six gonna blend right in um or she'll do like the um broken wing that that we see in other other yeah. bird species they kind of act like they're injured to help distract a predator from their eggs mm-hmm. and um hopefully she's successful in that and able to return right so i don't know how often it works but it's like the bleeding heart pigeons yeah they've got that unique skill trait to look like they're injured or yes yes it's so interesting how they adapt these behaviors and gotta do what you gotta do <laughs> you do uh so let's see let's get to the point where they hatch um they're precocial okay which means you know as soon as they're dried off from coming out of that egg they're able to walk mm-hmm. just and like little ducklings or goslings yeah, yep just like them um, they'll follow mom usually to a water source or wherever she needs to take them for resources. Um, and they're, they're with mom for a while, but the interesting part I found was that she's only providing them food exclusively for about a week. Okay. So it's not as long as your songbird that's going to be in a nest for two weeks. Right. Um, but they do stay with her up to a month. Uh, after that first week, they, this is when they start to forage on the, their own. They're already picking up on those skills on how to get food for themselves. Okay. So, and then by the one month mark, they're considered completely independent. And they'll so, leave mom and. Yep. From what I understand, they leave. They're on their own. Okay. Yeah. Um, it gets really interesting too. I want to talk about their conservation here. Yeah. In Illinois. And please do. They're considered least concern, which is good. Okay. Um, they are protected by the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, mm-hmm. just like any other migratory bird. Um, however, studies are indicating that their populations are declining around 1% every year. Oh. And this has been going on since the 1960s. Okay, so, so their populations have significantly decreased over that period of time. Yes. So they're still considered least concerned, but they have a population that is decreasing. It's not stable anymore. Not necessarily, no. Um, they are considered more adaptable than other shorebirds. I kind of touched on that earlier with the agricultural thing, Uh but yeah, we're still seeing a decline and, um, that kind of indicates, you know, concerns for other shorebirds that would rely on similar habitats. Cause it's like, well, if this more adaptable species is seeing a decline, then what does it mean for the other birds down the road? Right. What's going on with our marshlands? Are we Mm -hmm. completely wiping them out to put new roadways in or are we polluting them with something? Right. Why are these animals declining? Yeah. And actually there is, um, there's a state of the North American birds report that comes out. I want to say it's every other year. Okay. Uh, the most recent one I found was 2016. And woodcocks are listed on that as a species vulnerable to extinction without direct conservation action. Oh. So it's very interesting how we can say, yeah, they're least concerned. Yeah, we can but... recognize their population's declining. Oh, they could go extinct and we don't do anything about it. So Have you found any active woodcock projects? To... Yeah. You have? Yeah. Okay, elaborate. Mm-hmm. Um, there is, gosh, what is their name? Sorry, guys, I should remember that, right? Um, there's actually a woodcock conservation organization. It's timberdoodle.org, and that's not <laughs> <laughs> that's not their name though. It is. 
the Woodcock Management Plan. Um, there's also like a nonprofit organization I came across as well that advocates for their species and talks about how um, conservation for woodcocks will also mean conservation for other species that rely on similar habitats. Absolutely. Yeah. So I can definitely touch on that though. Um, but yeah, um, it's just, I just didn't realize this. I, I just always assume they're just a very common species that we see and see experience. Every, yeah. Um, but it looks like they might have some issues down the road if we're not being proactive about their care and their presence here. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. Um, there's another weird thing too. This is a very conservation is very, um, complex with woodcocks. Okay. Because they are one of the few shorebird species that we can hunt. Yes. I've known about this simply because working in a rehab setting, I feel like we come in with a lot of woodcocks that have eye trauma. Mm hmm and it's a result of hunting for the most part. So. Yeah. I mean, it could be. We'd have to look at, like, where those woodcocks are coming from. You know, are they coming from areas where hunting's legal, specifically woodcock hunting? Yeah, that's true. Know. You'd have to come more in depth with that study. Yes. But I did know that they were on the hunting list. Yeah. And, I mean, it makes sense because we hunt doves. Um. I don't know. I don't know anyone personally that hunts woodcocks. I guess it's not as popular as it used to be, um, but people do it and there is a bag limit on them. So it's not like you can just go and take as many as you want. I believe you can only take nine per season. Okay. So that's not horrible, but if you have every hunter doing that, then yeah. you're really going to approach that extinction limit. Right. So it'll be interesting to see if that law changes or, you know, what modifications they make if we start to see more of a decline in the species and to where we're getting concerned about them. Um, and of course, you know, with the decline, we have to talk about the human wildlife conflict because that's, that's led to the decline yeah. of these guys. Um, so we talk about them being migratory species and that is uh, problematic because we're located right within the Mississippi flyway. Right. So we're in a major migration path for these guys, and they actually live in this area during breeding season. Um, a lot of them are subjected to building collisions. They're visitors in an unknown area. Yes, yes. So they're not familiar with landscape changes. They're, you know, they have the intrinsic motivation to fly here. It's just built within them, and the roadmap that we've created is not. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, so these poor guys, because of those long beaks and those big eyes, they get hurt pretty bad. Yeah. I mean, you're talking like beaks getting snapped off bad sometimes. Eyes getting ruptured. Very gross stuff. And it's a little bit more serious than maybe a smaller songbird that could right. handle impact a little and bit better. Because those smaller birds, they're going to have more of the impact with their entire body. But these guys, when they collide, it's going to be with their face. It's like Pinocchio. Yeah. I mean, it's like something you got to worry about there. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, like we said, Hannah and I have both worked in rehab and we've seen these guys come in, especially during that spring migration and fall migration with these injuries. Mm -hmm. It's very common. Um, sometimes they pull through. Sometimes they don't. That's just kind of rehab world. Yeah. But 
Um, and then what else? Oh, yeah. And they migrate at night like most bird species do. Okay. So that just adds to it. You've got foreign structures. You've got light pollution that's making everyone disoriented. and confused. Especially with their big eyes. The yeah. light's going to get... <laughs> They're big eyes. Those big eyes. <laughs> it's like but any bit of light, light is going to, you know, any bit of light is going to yeah, make a huge difference. Yeah. The whole combination just leads to a really dangerous situation for woodcocks. Um, also, habitat space. We've developed a lot here in the area over the years. We've got all sorts of suburbs, cities, roads, mm-hmm. and that's meant, you know, habitat loss for these guys, but also just losing the amount of habitat they have, excuse me, and uh, like the quality of the habitat that's left. Right. So I mentioned that they they thrive in younger forested areas. We don't have too many of those. No. That's like the first that gets wiped out. Yes. Or or if they're protected, they grow and become more mature. And these guys don't use mature forested areas. They don't care for it. Yeah. So they can't use a big you know, forest preserve that's been here for 80 years that has 120 year old trees. They want the trees that are younger, much younger than that Mm -hmm. and smaller. So that's where we need to advocate for them and plant some trees and encourage our local government to keep those marshlands with Mm -hmm. not only, yeah, not only land protection, but land restoration. We need Mm -hmm. to build back up more of these places so that they have that chance to provide habitat space. Um, also, another thing I learned is they're really vulnerable to pesticides, which makes sense. They're, I can see that. They're on the ground. They're on the ground. They're ground feeding. They're eating those bugs that are affected by the pesticides. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm like losing my voice today. I don't know what it is. <laughs> Here we go. You good? I'm good. Got your voice back? I think so. Um, sorry about that, guys. But yeah, um we were talking about pesticides and it's stuff like lead yeah. that they can ingest and that's fatal if it's not treated. Um, it's expensive to treat. It's expensive <laughs> to even test. I yes. mean, most of the time I feel like centers have to send out that blood test to a separate lab. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. not as common to have the equipment on site to get it tested. And then by the time you do get the results back. You've got this tiny little bird that most likely has already passed from lead poisoning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's not just waterfowl or other animals that might be, you know, affected by lead poisoning, but woodcocks as well. I never really put two and two together. Like we think about ground feeders being exposed to pesticides, but also being exposed to things like lead. Yeah. I wouldn't have expected them. No. Um, so it's, it's just really important again to consider, you know, what are we putting into the ground? What are we exposing these animals to even what ground are we providing them to live on? Mm -hmm. It's really important. Um, and you know, we talk about why do we need woodcocks in the area? Well, like I said, they rely heavily on the young forested habitat, which means several other species rely on that same habitat. Right. You said they were a good bioindicator for that general category. They so are. Um, they share the same habitat as white-tailed deer, bobcat, wild turkey, um, smooth green snakes, just to be specific. <laughs> um, and of course, a lot of other things. But there's also, um, it's important to note that they share similar habitat to some other migratory birds that we see here that are declining in population as well. Okay. Um, golden-winged warblers, whippoorwills. 
uh, willow flycatchers and indigo buntings. Wow. They are all interconnected and they are all seeing a decline in population. And it's sad to think that they're visitors to our area and we are contributing to that decline. Yeah. Yeah. We, we definitely have a responsibility for, you know, helping maintain their habitat. If we care about their health, our health, and everyone's well-being, we've got a responsibility to care about it. And um, overall, their habitat, spat, habitat space uh, serves at least 60 species. So okay. same type of habitat. Yeah. I mean, I only listed a few. And these are ones that are common in Chicagoland area. We see them. People know about them. Right. But there's a lot more I didn't even list. So if you're losing that habitat and no longer serving this one species, who knows how you're affecting the other ones. They're either more adaptable or not. And I'd be a little bit more worried about the migratory birds, honestly. They're going to be the first species to indicate that we have a serious problem. Yeah. So, so they're super special. And it turns out they've got a little bit of a conservation concern going on that I didn't even know about. So yeah. Have to keep an eye on them over the coming years. Yeah. So if you want to check out more, I definitely encourage um, look into that Woodcock Management Plan. That's timberdoodle.org. I also got some info from the Audubon Society, Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Solid places to check out. Always. (laughs) Yes. And then the Illinois Department of Natural Resources, they provided the information on hunting and conservation management. So great places. Check them out. Oh, yes. And please check them out like a photo of them because they're so cute and weird. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. So should I wrap this up? You should. All right. Thank you for listening, everybody. Be sure to follow us on Twitter or check out our Facebook page. Both of those tags are at Cuckoo Podcast. We also have a Gmail account. So reach out to us with any wildlife concerns or questions Mm -hmm. or if you have some information on woodcocks that you would like to share with us or a personal story, please email us at hellocuckoopodcast at gmail.com. As always, we recorded today on Anchor FM, and we so appreciate our loyal, loyal listeners. Yes. We are glad to have you listening to us today. Okay. Thank you so much, guys. Take care. Bye. Bye.